Welcome to the Data Points Podcast. Focused on the importance of data in a 21st century world, we discuss data-centric topics such as fundamentals of data management and use, strategies for building buy-in within organizations, the crucial role that communities play in this very important work, and so much more. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Meg Burke, and I'm a researcher on the analytics team at the Bloomberg Center for Government Excellence at the Johns Hopkins University. My current work is focused on researching data around the standards of living in cities in the Americas. I've been digging a lot into different data sources over the past few months, and I've really enjoyed learning about different ways that data is presented and the implications of that. Another way that I've been spending my time is that I've also been coordinating a community of practice through the National Science Foundation grant. And as part of that, we've been focusing on innovative approaches to food system resilience. I'd previously worked at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future and was thrilled to be able to continue work on food systems issues and partner with that center as part of the Johns Hopkins team through this project. We need to first go back in time to late fall 2019. That's when we began planning for this project. What we're especially excited about today is the final outcome, a planning guide that cities can use to focus on food system resilience in their city, which is now publicly available. The process of creating this planning guide was a specific piece of a larger grant-funded project that included innovative ways to approach food system resilience in U.S. cities, while other researchers on the project focused on modeling and using engineering tools to explore resilience, Elsie, today's guest, and I worked on a piece that brought together cities as a community of practice and co-created the Food System Resilience Planning Guide through a series of monthly meetings, which we'll talk more about later. During today's episode, we'll discuss some lessons learned from the community of practice, what's new in the field of resilience research, and some things that we're excited about now that the Planning Guide is publicly available. I'm joined today by Elsie Moore. Elsie is a PhD candidate in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering and a research assistant for the Center for a Livable Future. The Center for a Livable Future has been GovX's partner on this project since 2019, and Elsie has been working on the project the entire time, and we are so thankful for that. Thank you for joining me today, Elsie. I can honestly say that it has been almost exactly three years ago to the day since we were in the same room, and I am thrilled to be here in person recording this podcast with you. Hi, Meg. Nice to be here today. <laughs> I can't believe that it's actually been three years. This is so exciting. So as you mentioned, I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And my research focuses on helping cities to prevent and prepare for and respond to disruptions that impact their food systems. So through this project, as well as my dissertation, I've partnered with local governments in the United States to help them build resources which support and evaluate sustainable, healthy, resilient food systems. So I've been involved in this project since its inception, and I'm thrilled that we're here to talk about it today and share. Could you give us a brief overview of food system resilience in case listeners are new to the topic? Yeah, absolutely. For our work, we use a definition of food system resilience that comes from a paper that was written in 2015 by Tendall and colleagues. And I promise I won't spend too much of today quoting academic papers, <laughs> but Food system resilience is really the capacity over time of a food system 
and its units at multiple levels to provide sufficient, appropriate, and accessible food to all in the face of various and unforeseen disturbances. So that's a lot of words, but really to put it more simply, it's how a food system can assure that people have accessible, available, and acceptable food at all times. And I know that we want to get much more into the content and the discussion about this project, but I also wanted to note that food system resilience is a process and not an outcome. It means that it's the system is recovering from a disaster or disruption and it's actually entering into a new state. So you don't reach food system resilience. For our work, it's about the process of building towards that. The resources that we're going to talk about later today provide a lot more background on food system resilience as the concept. So if I can be so bold as to make a shameless plug early on, I think that it's important to understand food system resilience before you talk about how you actually operationalize the work. Yes, Elsie, we love shameless plugs um, and especially ones for good resources. So absolutely. With that definition in mind, I guess I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit more on why this is such an important topic and why specifically this is such an important topic for cities. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great question to explore why this is an important topic now and why cities may be particularly interested in food system resiliency at this moment in time. And I think for me, it's really three main reasons. The first one is that natural and human-made disruptions are impacting and will continue to impact food systems. We can think about recent examples, the COVID-19 pandemic and how the kind of initial starting months of the pandemic influenced food systems and how they continue to influence them today. Extreme weather events, if you look at the news, there's flooding all across California and massive extreme weather events happening and how that will influence the agricultural system in California, but also the many states that also receive food products from the state. We can think about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that influenced global food systems. And I actually recently just looked up some data from the United States for a project, and the cost of food in August of 2022 was 11.4% higher than it was in 2021. So you can see how these disruptions impact food systems in multiple different dimensions of them, one of those being the economic accessibility and the actual cost of foods themselves. I think the second kind of piece of this is that those who are the most vulnerable or experience the greatest vulnerabilities and those who are most marginalized are at the greatest risk of these food system disruptions. So food system resilience is an important equity issue and has uh, potential to have massive benefits for equity by working on it. I think the other piece of this is that local governments around the United States, many of them have started to take action to prepare for 
and prevent the consequences of these disruptions on their food systems. But there's not a whole lot of information available to support local governments in this work. And it's really exciting that it feels like this field is growing and a lot more resources are becoming available. So happy to be engaged in those conversations through this work and hear what we're doing, but also what partners are doing as well. Now I want to shift us kind of back to the specifics of the community of practice and our project that we worked on together because I want to talk about how kind of the group came to be. So the recruitment for the community of practice, it began in late 2019, and we moved forward in early April 2020. And the timing was especially important as the group provided a space for shared learning on the emergency food response to COVID-19. It was a trusted space to share what didn't work uh, and the challenges that folks were facing, likely for the first time as the COVID-19 pandemic was a new type of stressor to their city's food system. I mean, Elsie, I mean, sometimes it's hard to think back, I think, on those early days of the pandemic. But this is when grocery stores barely had anything on their shelves, when You know, it was just a really crazy time, but it really seemed like it was so important to kick off this group at that time. I guess I just feel like we can't give enough congratulations and appreciation to the partner cities on this project, because as you were just talking about, there was an incredible amount of stress and responsibility that they had in their jobs at this point in time, and they still chose to come to these sessions and to help to create this new planning guide on food system resiliency because they recognized the power of planning and how it could help support them, but really their peers kind of in the case of future disruptive events. So I think you gave a really great um, overview of kind of the situation that we were in where this was being created, but I would just echo again my appreciation to them. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I I mean, so we spent six months starting in April of 2020 through October of 2020 on monthly calls, uh, co-creating the components that would be combined to form this planning guide. Do you want to dive into a little bit more about the cities and tell us who those cities were um, and maybe some more specifics about the group? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for giving that kind of timeline of Mm -hmm. this project. So we had planned it before COVID-19, but then with um, the pandemic happening, we had this kind of decision point about moving forward or not. So much of our recruitment of the actual cities happened before um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was that participants came um, from five cities across the United States. So it was representatives who were working with their local government, either as a part of kind of their job or related to a food policy council or were in connection with it. So the cities were Baltimore, Maryland, Moorhead, Minnesota, Denver, Colorado, Orlando, Florida, and Austin, Texas. 
And to step back a little bit, um, prior to the formation of this community of practice, Baltimore, Maryland had already developed a food system resiliency plan with the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future and researchers there. But the idea was how could other cities that are in different stages of their resiliency work either develop a standalone plan for food system resiliency, incorporate it into another plan, build out programs or practices. So how could we create a roadmap to support cities in this work? So in doing that, we knew in recruiting um, for the group that it was going to be important to have kind of a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of cities participating in it. So this was geographically, socially, politically. And I think one example that really kind of exemplifies that nicely is Moorhead, Minnesota is on the border with Fargo, North Dakota. And so they really take much more of a regional approach to their food system resilience planning and other localities or jurisdictions that might be in that similar situation Um, they could provide really nice insights into it. We also felt like kind of the weather events that were affecting cities would be really important. So trying to get a diversity of different hazards or risks to the food systems who were willing to kind of engage and share their learnings for this. Yeah, Elsie, that's actually a really interesting point. And you're making me remember, I mean, obviously we're going back three years in time right now, but Moorhead, Minnesota, do you remember that in the spring of 2020, they experienced really severe flooding right when the pandemic hit? And so they were trying to navigate the very severe flooding at the same time they were navigating the early days of the pandemic and trying to also distribute emergency food supplies. And they were kind of navigating all of that at the same time. And it was just such an interesting challenge that they had never faced before. And so to have that the conversation with the other cities of asking those questions. I just remember it was conversations that no one had ever had before, questions that had never been asked before. It was just so interesting to be on those calls. I think that that's a great point. And I think maybe some of the perspectives from cities and other situations, they were able to learn from one another. When you were just talking about that, I was reminded about kind of the the snowstorms that were uh, that Austin, Texas faced during this time and uh, a location that maybe doesn't face as many snowstorms, how they could learn from their peers that might be more equipped in those situations. So I think um, this diversity of cities also made the community of practice itself more rich for the participants because they could learn from one another as a part of this process as well and informing moving forward kind of the the transferability of the actual planning guide. Yeah, 2020 was quite a year. (laughs) You could say that again. (laughs) All right, let's move on a little bit. So, okay, we've talked a little bit about the actual variety of cities, um, both at different parts of the country. um, And so... I want to also think a little bit about the different kind of jobs and roles that people had in the group. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more about the specific people? Yeah, absolutely. So because 
local governments are often structured in different ways in kind of jurisdictions in the United States. Um, While we generally recruited individuals that were deeply engaged in kind of food systems work, they often were situated in different parts of government. So we had individuals from an Office of Sustainability an Office of Climate Action, Resiliency, and Sustainability. We had a city council member, individuals from a Department of Planning, a Department of Public Health. Um, We had representation from people who were engaged in kind of a downtown economic development agency. We also had people from a food policy council as well as um, a student who was partnering with um, their local government on this work. And so it was really kind of this diversity of perspectives that also helped to make the planning guide um, hopefully utilizable by people working within a different agency or sector of government. And to help make that just like a little bit more tangible, I think that someone whose main job responsibilities are focused on climate change hazards, they're going to approach food system resiliency in one way that maybe is more focused on kind of the risk and what's that going to look like versus someone who's in a local health department who might be focused on kind of that that intersection with food and health. And so how we could make this resource supportive to um, both of those individuals as well as those um, more broadly. All right. So, Elsie, we just set the scene of kind of what the format of the community of practice was and how it was structured. So I want to get a little bit deeper kind of into what we learned from the community of practice. So can you share some of the outcomes or lessons learned from the community of practice? Yeah, definitely. And I think this is the really exciting stuff. So I think the first one is that community collaboration and guidance are critical for this work and that co-creating solutions with equity at the center is really the most important part. That while the community of practice members were representatives of local government, there was this um immense belief and emphasis on working with and co-creating solutions um, with communities that are impacted by it. We've really tried to factor that into the planning guide. And I think of all of kind of the, the modules, that's the one we spent the most time on because it felt like we needed to get that right because the community of practice emphasized it over and over again. I think the other one to mention is that language matters and that word choices are important considerations. And that comes back to kind of what we talked about earlier is that people come from really different perspectives. So how one individual might think about resiliency is different than how someone else thinks about it. The same thing could be said for terms such as vulnerability. And so we tried to use a language that would resonate with people of different audiences, but also be upfront about the choices that we made in the languages that we used in these resources, that we come from a certain frame of reference, and that did inform it. And that kind of idea, I think, was informed by this lesson learned from the community of practice. Something else that came up again and again is that goals are good. 
Um, (laughs) I think we hear that a lot about the importance of goals, that they should be quantifiable and measurable and attainable. Having them in place can help to drive action. It can help to bring support for this work. And so setting out them and being intentional with goal setting can be really beneficial for food system resiliency work. I think uh, while there were many, many other lessons learned, the one other one that I thought um, was particularly interesting and relevant is that this work is just, it's essential, but that oftentimes the harder and the more complex work gets pushed off. That sometimes it's easier to work on the the immediate and the things, particularly with uh, the constant hazards that are happening, that sometimes the larger planning, the equity-based work isn't immediately addressed. Oh, and I think I maybe forgot one other thing that I wanted to kind of share, and it's the idea that relationships are key um, and that we we collaborate and I and I if you could see I'm putting this in quotes here because it came directly from one of our conversations at at the speed of trust. And this was one of the ways that the community of practice members phrased it. But others brought up the same idea again and again that relationships take time, but they're really essential and at the core of a lot of this work. Okay, well, thank you, Elsie. And I'm really glad that you didn't forget that one because I really like that one. And I'm really glad that collaborating at the speed of trust was brought up. I remember when that was mentioned during the community of practice meeting. And I remember that everyone had such a really kind of great immediate reaction to it. And I think we all were just kind of like, oh, that makes so much sense. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk um, specifically about cities and their resilience work. And specifically, I want to talk, I want a little bit more about the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know that you're focused a lot on the data analysis for this. So can you tell us some of the lessons learned from the city's emergency food response efforts to COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. And so as I mentioned, we were able to uh, capture some of these lessons learned Uh, both from the surveys that we did before and after the community of practice, the discussions within them, and then kind of the in-depth interviews that we completed uh, with the participants. We actually spent quite a bit of time talking through lessons learned from COVID-19 emergency response efforts. And we've actually structured these now as kind of a SWOT analysis, so strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to help to create these in a way that's a little bit easier to digest. So I think if we start with the strengths, one of the big things was preparedness. And this was related to having a plan in place to know how to handle a food emergency response effort and also having people in place to implement that plan. So reiterating that importance of like, how do we plan for these things and then actually act on them? There was also the importance of connectivity. Because of this response, kind of participants were talking to more people and they were talking to them more frequently. And so how this connectivity really kind of made them have a stronger response effort. I think an interesting piece was flexibility that came out of this, that uh, not waiting 
and acting quickly and thinking probably about the own response that happened in your jurisdiction, wherever kind of listeners are based. There was often a lot of things that went into place really, really quickly and impressively quickly. And so that just let's work, let's act on this. Even if it's imperfect, it's uh, potentially better than doing doing nothing. I think another kind of piece was the importance of community support, that with this acting quickly, that people really showed up. They showed up from multiple different agencies, nonprofits, groups partnered together um, to put some of these these pieces into place and to make sure that people had um, access to safe and nutritious foods. It's interesting to look the strengths and the weaknesses together because mm-hmm. some of the strengths also showed up as as a weakness for other people. So this idea, again, of preparedness, that lack of having a designated food person or lack of having a plan in place for this uh, made the response efforts more challenging. That same kind of parallel could be thought about in terms of like connectivity. And if you don't know the partners to work with on this or you haven't identified them, there's not a ready list of who to call and who's going to be doing what. Again, that 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 makes it more challenging. I think uh, while there were many other things that I identified, one of them that was really interesting was this idea of kind of human capital and that people were working such long hours that it made it made it really challenging um, to to do the work effectively when people were overburdened by it and there weren't support mechanisms to kind of sub people in and out from it. Yeah. And I know that that also I mean, I remember that that also came up as a threat because that the burnout and the staff capacity was also definitely a threat to some of the cities as well, because that's a very real issue. Um, Were there any interesting opportunities that you'd want to mention? I guess I'm just curious if there were any that are interesting. Yeah. And I actually I kind of I like the idea of uh, looking towards opportunities because I think it's where what we're going to be talking about next, this planning guide fits into it. What are the spaces um, that we can kind of capitalize. And one of the opportunities, um, even though it in some ways kind of sounds weird to say, and it, it is a direct quote, it was to capitalize on COVID, to use the COVID-19 experience because all jurisdictions to uh, differing levels did understand how it impacted food systems and see how it impacted food systems to really support and build longer term resiliency planning. And I think there's now uh, jurisdictions that have faced many other um, hazards or disruptions that they could point to to say this work is this work is important and that we need to to be planning for it. One of the other kind of opportunities that I really liked was getting creative. That there isn't necessarily one right way to do food system resiliency work, and that starting someplace on it is often a really, really effective um, strategy, and that it doesn't, uh, what, what is it? And it, perfect is the enemy of done. And I'm not sure if that totally translates or I'm getting it exactly right, but it's this idea of like, if you're waiting to have all the pieces in place, all the funding in place, all the staff time in place, that it might not happen. And so try to come up with something now. I think the one other kind of important opportunity 
uh, was this idea of needing to work on the underlying systems and the root causes, that food systems are interconnected with many other systems and that there's this huge equity and justice piece of it. And that oftentimes um, one of the members of the community of practice, I remember they shared that working on mental health is working on food system resiliency. And they much more eloquently, and I won't try and explain that interlinkages, but made a strong case for how those two things work. Are working on housing, working on economic development, are supporting food security. And so kind of that creativity to figure out how you can work on, on the multiple kind of intersecting and underlying systems. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I do remember when that point was made. And I just really thought that that was so creative and just so eye opening. And it just kind of made it all click for me. And I really appreciated that viewpoint. We've talked kind of through all of these lessons learned. And our goal for that community of practice was always to kind of co-create a resource. And it was a little bit kind of open-ended with what that could actually look like. There was a lot of creativity that we were given. And so I think that when the pandemic happened, we changed course a lot. And so we created a planning guide, the Food System Resilience Planning Guide. And so, Elsie, I'm wondering if you can maybe give us a little bit more of an overview of, of what is in that planning guide. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And while it took us a long time to create it, I think in part that was because it was such an iterative process that our initial vision for what this wasn't or what this was going to look like, we revisited time and time again based off of what we were hearing from the community of practice members. And so for this planning guide, we created six modules. So the modules are Get Started equity and resilience, define and scope, assess, strategize, and implement and measure. And the idea is that it's broken into these modules so that individuals can go through the planning guide at their own pace and that each module is kind of standalone in many ways. Ideally, yes, someone would start at the beginning of the planning guide and go through the linear process of it. But this was a result of the acknowledgement that Many places are in different stages and that some might already be started on this work. And so they want to pick up at the assessment piece of it and really dig into what are the hazards that are impacting the food system? What are kind of the vulnerabilities or the resilience attributes or the strengths that there might be within their jurisdiction that they can they can build on? And they might start from a different kind of point in the planning guide. I think the other thing to help kind of listeners understand what this guide is, is it's a suite of resources. So each module has a description and background information about what's necessary to complete it. But really, it's focused on the tools, which are actionable resources that individuals go through in order to come away with something that's concrete. And so to give just like an example of that, we have kind of at the starting and the get started module, an assessment of where kind of your jurisdiction is already at in terms of food system resiliency planning so that you can get a sense of what your starting point is, what are some of your strengths, what are some of the the limitations or gaps in this to help identify where to to target pieces of it. 
Yeah, that is really helpful. And I think the other thing that maybe we haven't touched on here, but that I want to point out because we've talked about it so much during today's session is one thing we've talked about a lot is our focus on defining terms and making sure that, you know, language matters. And that's one thing that we've definitely done in this guide is really try and focus on that. And the other piece is really our focus on equity. You know, we've got equity as an entire section where we really dig into the importance of equity and what that means for a city. But the other thing that we've done is put a focus on equity throughout the entire toolkit so that there is no possible way that a city can kind of go through without being exceptionally intentional about equity. Are there any specific points that you wanted to make about how cities can use the guide before we wrap up? Yeah, so hopefully there's a lot of opportunities for cities to use the planning guide regardless of where they are in the process. So cities can use the guide if they want to get started on food system resiliency work, if they want to learn more about the concept and how they might be able to recruit their colleagues and their peers and their community partners to be engaged in this work and who those individuals actually are. I think also throughout the guide, when you were talking about things that kind of flowed throughout it, we've really tried to incorporate kind of the peer perspectives or the perspectives of the community of practice throughout it, where they're actually sharing how they did this work and lots and lots of examples from jurisdictions across the United States to give people an idea of how they could actually get started on this work. For those that maybe are more engaged in the work or a little bit further along, I think the planning guide can help to improve or kind of continue the process of working on food system resilience and maybe uh, more deeply engaging kind of with the inequities or the weaknesses of a city's food system or understanding more about kind of the threats or the vulnerabilities and taking kind of resiliency planning to, to, the, to the next step. And then those that maybe already have kind of more of a plan in place or programs in place, we give different tips and strategies around implementing the work or measuring and monitoring the work. In many ways, food system resiliency implementation is still pretty, pretty nascent. And so there hasn't been a ton of evaluation yet that has taken place. And so uh, that part of the guide is more kind of helping people to start to implement their food system resiliency work. But I think what's kind of unique about this work is there's really opportunities for win-wins. So even if a disaster disruption never happens in the food system and a place has gone through the planning guide and developed these strategies, that really they have a opportunity to build a more equitable and just and sustainable food system. And so there, there's not kind of the, the risk of going through it and saying, oh, well, the snowstorm never happened and we'd planned for it, that many of these strategies are still going to work on kind of those underlying root causes and um, trying to address them. Right. I think that's an excellent point. And I, I also think that the COVID-19 pandemic really proved to cities that planning for any type of disruption was really helpful because it they, I don't think a lot of cities saw that type of disruption coming. And so any type of planning was very helpful in that moment. So that's a really excellent point to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such fun. And 
to all of the listeners and the people that are thinking about this work and are moving food system resiliency and emergency management work forward. Hopefully this planning guide can support or be of interest to them. So I want to wrap up today's session by sharing a bit more about the planning guide and and kind of how to find it. To find the Food System Resilience Planning Guide, you can visit GovX's website. It's govx.jhu.edu, and you can click on the In the News link on our website header, or you can go to the Center for a Livable Futures website. It's jhsph.edu backslash CLF, and you'll find it there on the Food System Resilience page. The resource is free and it's available for download as a PDF. While food system resilience is a new field and one that cities might just be starting to explore, it's one that's gaining a lot of momentum. And so Elsie and I and the rest of our team, we plan to spend the next few months speaking about the planning guide and this work specifically at upcoming conferences and seminars. And we're really excited about continuing to share about this work and the planning guide. We want to make sure to also thank the five cities that participated in the community of practice and co-creating this resource with us. Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado, Orlando, Florida, Baltimore, Maryland, and Moorhead, Minnesota, as well as our co-authors on the planning guide, Ronnie Neff, Caitlin Miziazic, Karen Basarab, and Aaron Beal. And again, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Elsie. Until next time, and hopefully it is not another three years before I see you in person. Thank you so much for everyone joining us today. 